And as he came clear, one person put 24 rounds in him and I was a bit further away and I did what I was supposed to do, a quick three-round burst, and he crumpled on the floor. Welcome to Conflict Chronicles, the podcast where battlefield stories are told. Share in the physical and mental experiences of those who have been on the front line of conflict. I am your host, Neil. This show may contain adult language and strong themes from conflict zones. Listener discretion is advised. I am delighted to be joined by Robin Horsfall, the wise old paratrooper, a gentleman with an impressive military history and background, a published author, a sniper, a black belt in karate at sixth dan level, fluent in Arabic, a business owner, a professional bodyguard, a cancer survivor, a media commentator, a husband, a father to five children, a grandfather to 10 children, and now one of the most articulate British military veteran campaigners. Born in 1957 with a tough childhood, Robin joined the army in 1972 at the age of 15 under the British Junior Soldier Program. By 1975, he had qualified as a paratrooper, joining the 2nd Battalion, the Parachute Regiment, itself an elite fighting unit of the British Army. He completed three dangerous tours of the Troubles in Northern Ireland during 1975 through to 78. He was shot, stabbed and the victim of an attempted bombing. Always wanting a challenge, he put himself forward for the elite of the elite the British Special Air Services, SAS. Falling just short of the pass mark on his first attempt of one of the most gruelling military courses in the world, he passed on his second time around and became what is known as badged. In 1979, he joined B Squadron 22 SAS and qualified as a registered emergency medical technician, deploying again to Northern Ireland for his fourth time. He took part in several famous missions, including the Iranian embassy siege in London and the suicide mission into Argentina in 1982. On leaving the SAS in 1984, he became a professional bodyguard for the Al-Fayed family, at the time owners of the Hotel Ritz in Paris, Harrods department store in London and Fulham Football Club in England. Again, seeking further adventure, he undertook several assignments in a variety of high-risk global locations as a bodyguard and risk consultant. In 2012, after breaking his neck, he decided to slow the pace down, but not the challenge. He attended university and gained a degree in English literature. Robin has been at the forefront of the campaign to support British military veterans to stop the prosecution and persecution of those who served in Northern Ireland between 1969 and 1999. Soldiers who were previously investigated and cleared are repeatedly taken to court without new evidence for political gain. Robin will be talking more about this on another podcast episode. Today, Robin is going to talk about the two famous key events in his SAS career. Take me back to the 1980s, and in particular to April 1980. You would have been 
training and suddenly got the word that you had to go to London? I was in the SAS. I was 23 years old. I'd been in the regiment for about 18 months. Um, and uh, the SAS, the Special Air Service Regiment, was unheard of. Nobody, even in Britain, had heard of it. It was a tiny little specialist special forces unit tucked away in the West Country of the United Kingdom. It consisted of about 250 soldiers with about another 500 support on. After the Munich disaster in, in the 70s at the Olympic Games, where the police attempted to rescue hostages held by the PLO, the British government decided to invest money in a counter-terrorist team for if, if such an occasion should happen in the United Kingdom. And they tasked the Special Air Service and budgeted them to do that. Nothing ever happened um, with these things until all of a sudden, on um, April 30th, 1980, um, a group of terrorists, six terrorists, took over the Iranian embassy in London and took 22 hostages, uh, of which three were British journalists and one British driver as well. And because there were British, British personnel in there, it made it easier for our government to decide that, you know, something needed to be done. But as usual, the policy was that, you know, we would, uh, the government would negotiate, the police would negotiate with the terrorists who try to uh, get everybody released and get a peaceful settlement at the end. Um, the siege went on for six days. And on May the 5th, 1980, um, the terrorists, one of the terrorists called Feitel, killed one of the hostages. They shot him twice in the head and the body was thrown out onto the street. At that time, the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary, the Prime Minister was Margaret Thatcher, and uh, the Home Secretary was William Whitelaw. Uh, they gave authority to the Chief of Police to give authority to the army to mount an assault on the building. And 20 minutes later, we assaulted the building. Now, the building was... 54 rooms and five floors. And although the famous footage that people occasionally see on YouTube and other places shows eight guys going over a balcony and going through a front window, we actually entered in eight different entry points and 48 of us actually assaulted the building, taking out floors uh, for each eight-man group. And um, we rescued 19 people alive. One hostage was killed by a terrorist during the entry. And we killed five terrorists in Capital One. And um, it was the first time the Special Air Service had ever been heard of. We were thrust onto the international stage and we all climbed into the back of a big yellow truck and drove away back to anonymity in darkest territory. What were you doing when you got word this operation was going to kick off? Because as you say, it was unheard of, it was unusual. How did you hear about this well, we heard about it from the, the television and radio. We heard about it on the BBC. So we were preparing in Hebron. It's a nice sunny day. Um, it was a Monday. And it was a nice sunny day. And we had planned to drive uh, about 400 miles to Edinburgh to do a training exercise with the police. Now, our team at that time consisted of six white Range Rovers and six white transit vans with all our equipment and ammunition and so on uh, to travel to Edinburgh. Well, of course, this news started to seep in from London at about eight or nine o'clock in the morning. I'm not sure of the exact time. And um, so the officer commanding, uh, uh, Mike Rose, the colonel, decided that it wouldn't be a good idea. There might be a call. It might develop into something. And for the rest of the day, we essentially followed the feedback that was coming from the media. 
because that intelligence was the best intelligence we were getting from what was happening in London. There were people on the ground. And a reconnaissance team of commanders flew by Chinook helicopter, not Chinook, um, a gazelle helicopter, down to London and um, started to get an update. And by the time the evening came, we still hadn't been given orders to move, but the fact that hostages had been taken, threats had been made, deadlines were given. And so the colonel decided it'd be a good idea to get us closer to London. So we drove to a place called Beaconsfield, about 25 miles outside London. And we got there in dribs and drabs at about just after midnight. And then we waited for permission to move again. And the next morning, we got permission to move into Regent's Park Barracks on Tottenham Court Road uh, in central London, where we prepared uh, to react to whatever was going on. And the next day, the Tuesday night, we... Um, we sneaked up to the building next door to the Iranian Embassy, which was the Royal College of General Practitioners. And uh, we sneaked into that building in the dark uh, through the back doors. And from that point onwards, we were next door uh, prepared to mount an assault. And you were there for several days waiting there, I understand? When I moved in, I guess it was four days there, yeah, from the Tuesday through to the, through to the Sunday. So that's 48 of you in... Creeping around. 60 of us, the whole squadron. The whole squadron, including our signalers, our attached arms, our uh, signal showmen, um, our intelligence officers, our communications people, and so on. But um, so the whole squadron are like 40, 48 men who were part of the assault team, and then probably about another 12, 15 support arms as well. So, what was the atmosphere like? Excited, um, but also cynical, you know, in the sense of, oh, this will never happen. <laughs> You know, this is, you know, with, but you know, there were deadlines, and um, when you arrive, you get what's called an immediate action plan. So the officers make an immediate action plan. So if everything goes tits up at that moment in time, and things start to go wrong, and they start to shoot people, then you have to have a plan with areas of responsibility, and you go in, hit the doors with sledgehammers, hope for the best, and see how many you can rescue. Um, so we had a, and, and over the next period of time, as the days pass you build a deliberate action. And that deliberate action is based on the intelligence and the plans and the building um, architectural drawings and so on as they come in. And information from people that were released. Um, a woman was released because she was pregnant and fell ill. Grandma, a BBC uh, journalist, was um, released as well because he pretended he was ill. So he managed to get out. And so, and later on, Jaffa Karkuti also was released by the terrorists. And so every time somebody was released, uh, it gave us more information to build our deliberate action on. So by the time it came to the sixth day, sixth day, um, we had a pretty good planning place. We know who was doing what. We'd had rehearsals. Um, we'd gone through various different scenarios if things got go wrong. And we had plans to assault the building, assault the bus, assault the aircraft, assault every possibility. And um, when we were given permission, it turned out to be the building and so on. So the terrorists shoot one of the hostages, the tempo rises, you get the order to go. Yeah, so we uh, once permission was given, the squadron commander, Hector Gullen, uh, gave us a final quick briefing, and the simple plan was that everybody moves to their entry point quietly. So everybody moves. So there's an entry point on the roof, an entry point on the back door, an entry point on the front balcony, back balcony, in a chimney area um, in the centre of the building 
once we'd had that final quick summary, um, we started to move into our attack positions. And the cunning plan was that we would all get to our uh, assault positions, plant explosives on the entry points, and get given the go, go, go. Everybody goes in together. But of course, that never happens. You make a plan and uh, things change. And what happened was the guys who were abseiling down the back of the building onto the balcony behind, uh, one of them put their foot through the window. And as he got, as that happened, he also got his uh, abseil glove caught into his figure of eight harness and uh, got jammed. And Salim, the lead terrorist, um, said that he thought he'd heard something. He was talking to the police negotiator, Max Vernon, at the time, and he was going to go to investigate. So instead of waiting till everybody was in position, Hector had to turn around and say, you know, we've been compromised and gave the go, go, go early. And that's why uh, on the television footage, you see one of the soldiers, John McAleese, leap over the balcony, shove his frame charge on the window, leap back, and he goes off when he's about four feet away from it because all of a sudden they're in a hurry. The explosives weren't ready. So Bob Curry took the back doors out with a sledgehammer and we went in with a sledgehammer um, instead of blowing the doors off. And um, the guy that got stuck on his rope um, remained jammed and the others carried on down, went through the windows, the curtain caught fire and the flames were lapping up under uh, Tom Morell who was hanging on this rope. The guys on the roof, roof are deciding whether they're going to abseil down into the flames or try to cut him down first. So they eventually managed to cut him down on the inswing. He's kicking himself away from the um, flames. Um, and he lands on the balcony rather than dropping another 30 feet to the floor. And then he goes in and carries on and does his job as well. At the same time on that balcony, Tommy Palmer's head caught fire. And so he takes off his gas mask and it's melting down the side of his face and then goes back into the gas and managed to kill two of the terrorists. Tom McDonald comes in the front window and uh, Trevor Locke, uh, Trevor Locke, yes, Trevor Locke. Trevor Locke is struggling with uh, one of the, uh, with, with um, one of the terrorists, with Salim, the leader. And uh, Tom shouts to Trevor, roll away. And as he does, Tom kills um, Tom killed Salim with a short burst. Uh, my team's on the back door. There's bullets coming through the window above. I don't know if they're friendly fire or not. And my job at that time was to hold the back door and respond to any emergency. But the guy who was stuck in the flames above my head had got his pressle switch on his radio jammed shut. And so communications were stopped. So as he would cut down, um, Hector's hold said, for me and my partner, Ginge, to go in. So we went in only to find that pretty much things were as they should be on the inside. A chain had been established up through the five floors. There was a hell of a lot of noise coming from upstairs. And as I got to the bottom of the stairs, Trevor, the policeman, came clear and I grabbed him, took him out the front door, let him go, and then went back inside. And then the hostages started to come down and we just threw them hand to hand, hand to hand, it was like passing a rugby ball. Bang, 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 bang. You keep control of people with fear under those circumstances, and out they were going. And then there was a, a little fracas on the stairway above me, and somebody uh, shouted, he's a terrorist, and somebody got butt-swiped. And this guy staggered away uh, towards the bottom of the stairs, and as he came clear, one person put 24 rounds in him, 
and I was a bit further away, and I did what I was supposed to do, a quick three-round burst, and he crumpled on the floor. And um, a hand grenade, he'd had a hand grenade in his hand. I never saw it at the time, um, but somebody had shouted that he's got a grenade, and I just believed them. Um, and there he was, dead. Um, the, uh, one of the terrorists got out with the hostages, uh, sneaked himself in amongst them. It took us about seven minutes from the initiation, clear the whole building, um, to have everybody, either five terrorists shot, one captured out on the grass, 19 hostages on the grass outside, uh, all safe and unharmed, and the job done, and us walking back into uh, Royal College of General Practitioners and handing over to the police. Seven minutes. And then all of a sudden, the world knew who the SAS were. How well prepared were you with your training for that? Yeah, we were extraordinarily well prepared because the way, way the SAS consists of four squadrons, and we had six-month rotation. So every squadron did that job once every two years. Um, sometimes it changed, and I'd managed to, in 18 months, I was on my second tour because G Squadron had been shipped over to do Arctic warfare, and so we did it twice in 18 months rather than twice in two, in, in two and a bit years. Um, and they were extremely annoyed, the fact that we'd just taken over from six weeks before. But we spent... We spent all our time, five or six days a week, practicing exactly these scenarios over and over and over again. And we were extraordinarily fit, extraordinarily practical, extraordinarily proficient with our weapons. And so we used to stand um, in a darkened room with guys wearing gas masks and all their equipment on, and they would face away from you, and we would stand with the targets touching our shoulders. And they would turn, draw, and fire double taps into these targets, two on our left, two on our right. And this built up a huge amount of confidence and in one another and proficiency in shooting. And you had to be able, with, it, with five meters, you had to be able to put uh, two rounds in a four-inch circle every single time, not just with a pistol, but with a semi-automatic MP5 as well, a three-round burst. So we would sit people in chairs in little rooms, charge in, fire live ammunition, um, at targets that were surrounding a hostage in the room. And we always go towards the threat. So there's none of this um, look round the corner first. You blow the door in or you kick the door in or you just open the door with the handle if it's convenient, and in you go, and uh, you go directly to the threat. Whichever way the first person goes, second person goes in the opposite direction. So you're getting coverage. And the best way to make sure that a hostage is safe is to kill the terrorists, and that was our policy. You know, that's not a case of uh, having um, authority to kill people without a reason, but the reason you're going in there to rescue people is that this person's life is in danger, and when you see a threat and a person's holding a gun, then lethal force is justified. And we were always answerable to the British law. How was everybody feeling? Because, as you say, you were suddenly forced into the limelight. Well... The regiment's name was forced into the limelight, but we just um, remained anonymous and disappeared back into Hereford. And the reason for that anonymity um, wasn't that we were a counter-terrorist team. It was because we were, us and our families, were under threat of being murdered by the Irish Public Army, the IRA, who were operating a war against us in Northern Ireland, a terrorist war against us in Northern Ireland. So, you know, a lot of the pictures people see are us with the long hair and droopy moustaches and don't look a bit like soldiers. 
And the reason for that was we had to operate undercover in Northern Ireland, but we also had to go home and make sure that we weren't identified by terrorists who were quite happy to murder our wives and our children if they couldn't get up. The SAS became a household name. It was certainly, as a child, it was my introduction um, to that. How did life change for you after that point? Well, initially, not a lot. I mean, it was okay. We've got to be ready for another job tomorrow. So get back. And, you know, the attitude was very much, you know, okay, it's a job. It didn't last long. It was successful. We're really happy about that. Uh, Now let's get back to work and forget about it, of course, but the world wouldn't let us. And the type of person that started to arrive in Hereford was very different. So it changed. I mean, all of a sudden from being Fred Carnot's army stuck in darkest Herefordshire, 25 miles from the mountains, you know, and all you think about is sex and soldiering. That's what SAS really stands for. Um, All of a sudden people are talking about uh, special forces pay and mortgages and uh, promotion and uh, every famous person in the country wants to have a day out and come and visit you. So, yeah, things changed. And it, that, that was enjoyable for a while. But you could see the standards and the professionalism starting to, starting to change and the unity that existed before because we were all, you know, all pretty much a, a, a poor united family of guys that were interested only in being soldiers. And so that changed. And the people coming along on selection to a, to a limited degree started to change as well. So they didn't come there because they wanted to do that particular job. They wanted to come there because we were famous. What's the biggest misconception about that operation and reality? Well, the two movies are both absolute garbage. They really are very, very bad. They're historically inaccurate. They're absolute fantasy. But from my perspective, the worst thing about all of them is the characterization of the soldiers. And this idea that you've got these guys who are super aggressive, super hard, who glare at each other all the time, who swear all the time, who are dangerous animals that should be kept on a chain and only let out on, you know, when they're needed. Um, whereas, in fact, what you've got is you've got guys who are experts in closes, languages, medicine, signals, uh, who can sit down and do Morse code, uh, do minor operations in the field, um, run medical programs, uh, blow up bridges. Um, you know, they're extraordinary people, an awful lot of them. And the characterization of the, the people who wrote these things diminishes that. And um, that's what I really don't like. Is there something humorous that probably went wrong that really sticks in your mind? During the week that we were sat next door, the five days, six days, it was five days, we were sat next door. We were constantly watching the Embassy Snooker Championship from Sheffield, which is the most amazing television from the 1980s, hours and hours of people playing snooker. And we were watching it. And the finals was actually on when we made the assault. So as we came back into the building um, and all the police officers were standing there like a, it was like running a gauntlet of backslaps, you know, wow, guys, you know, that was amazing. That was fantastic. Wow, judge. And all this. Um, the guy at the front, Steve Stevenson, pulled up his gas mask and looked at one of the policemen and said, 
Who won the snooker? Was this one of the most significant or were there many other times? Yeah, much more, many, many more. Um, you know, the, um, the Arabian Nancy is obviously famous, but it was, it was 15 minutes. It was 50, it was, it was a whole squadron of men against six terrorists. Um, but it was an operation well-planned, well-prepared for, and successfully carried out. The Falklands, you know, is a whole different story, um, which we will go on to later. There were, we were constantly undercover in Northern Ireland, confronting terrorists who were quite prepared to blow us up, kill us. Um, and so that, they were long-term operations where you were on the ground for as much as six months at a time. So, yeah, I mean, even as, a, even as an, an ordinary infantryman, a young paratrooper, not walking the streets of Northern Ireland hour after hour, day after day, um, waiting to get shot at, that's a hell of a lot more scary than going into a building um, and, and attacking a small number of terrorists when you've got all the advantages. So you briefly mentioned there the Falklands, and if we can turn our minds to that, there is quite a famous operation that was planned and didn't go ahead that isn't well documented. When the Falklands War started, B Squadron was tasked to go to the war, uh, but not immediately. G and A Squadrons went off down there. Uh, G and D Squadrons went off down there very, very quickly. And the Atlantic Conveyor, which was a transport ship with all our Chinook helicopters and sea harriers on it, was sunk, which suddenly put the balance of power very much to the advantage of the Argentinian Air Force and the Argentinian troops. And then some of our capital ships got sunk as well. And they were getting sunk by Exocet missiles being carried by Super Entendard jets. Super Entendard jets. And they were flying out from the mainland of Argentina. Now, if one of those jets had managed to sink an aircraft carrier, then the chances are that we would have lost the campaign. And so B Squadron was tasked to go into Argentina in two T-130 Hercules aircraft, land on the runway at the airport where these uh, jets were flying from, take them out, and then get killed or captured because there was no way back, there was no fuel. And um, so we, we, we practiced and prepared for this mission. Now, bearing in mind, I've already said there's only 60 men in the squadron. Can you imagine 60 men standing on a football field, let alone an airfield? It's not a lot of people. And we were going to drive off the back of these, um, these aircraft in Land Rovers with mounted machine guns and do something like out of the Second World War and shoot everything up and hope we get the jets. Well, we didn't think that this plan was a particularly good one, but um, we, we made other suggestions like let's parachute on the ground, uh, let's walk in onto the target, take the uh, jets out as they're taxiing down the runway with uh, Milan missiles. We had all sorts of other plans, but Brigadier de Billia, who was in charge, said, no, this is his plan. This is how he wants it doing for the glory of the regiment. And uh, so off we set, and we got as far as Ascension Island, which is in the middle of the Atlantic, uh, halfway there. And Ronald Reagan put pressure on Margaret Thatcher not to extend the war onto the mainland because Paris and Marines, the Guards, the Air Force, the Navy were doing such a fantastic job, and it was going well. So it was paused, but the reconnaissance team was sent in, and they, they, they were sent in by helicopter to Argentina. And um, they were compromised almost immediately, so they had to run for the Chilean border, which they did. 
We, on the other hand, were still being told, as soon as we can, we're going to take off to do this job. And um, as time passed, the war got better and better on the mainland, and um, the job was eventually cancelled. And so our officers decided that they had a damn good idea to get us down there to do something useful before the war was over. So the plan was on these two aircraft, these two special forces flights, were going to fly us down, uh, parachute us into the sea, and we were going to Port Stanley from the seaside while the Paris and Marines were approaching from the land side. One of the aircraft uh, broke its refueling nozzle halfway there and turned around and went back. So now there's only like uh, 30 of us on this, uh, on this uh, flight. Uh, we get over the, the drop zone, and below us there is a destroyer and a cruiser waiting to pick us up. And all our equipment goes out on one-ton containers at the back, all our rockets, all our personal equipment, all our ammunition, all our bombs. And uh, we, were, we, we followed it out. And as I was following it out, I was looking at these floating pieces of cloth streaming across the sky and thought, that looks peculiar. And we got down and we were picked up by the Navy. And uh, what had happened is the RAF hadn't attached the parachutes properly. Um, they pendulumed, the parachutes came off, and all our equipment essentially bombed the ships that were waiting to pick us up in the water down below, and our equipment went to the bottom of the sea. But the good part of the story is that the Argentinian army discovered that there were 30 members of B Squad 22 SAS who had just landed in the water, and they surrendered three days later. That is absolutely incredible. What was the sense amongst yourselves back then? Well, there was some trepidation, and the major who was in charge of us at the time, which wasn't Hector, he confronted uh, the brigadier and said, you know, what's the exit plan? Him and uh, a staff sergeant. And they were immediately fired. They were immediately sacked. Not from the regiment, but from the mission, because they had a negative attitude. They were simply asking questions about how are we coming out, how are we going home? Well, of course, there was no way home. There were some mutterings uh, amongst the troops, and one person suggests, are we going to stand by them? And he was told to wind his neck in, because essentially we were soldiers. And you wear that cap badge, and you have all the name and all the glory, and when it comes to things like that, well, the question you have to ask yourself is, are you going to go or aren't you? And um, I had a wife who was eight months pregnant at the time with my first son. Are you worth it? Are you wearing it uh, because it's just nonsense, or are you wearing it because it means something? And regardless of whether the mission actually finally took place or not, we all got on the aircraft and we set off to do it. So is this part of what you were talking about post the Iranian embassy, where the attitude and style changed and it was more about how do we make it look good and less about the logic? No, I think, um, I think for a while people started, after the Iranian embassy in 1980, people started to believe their own precedent. You know, they started to actually believe that they were super gods and capable of amazing things. And it's lovely to be flattered and worshipped, but um, as prof uh, there was a, a large percentage of us as professional soldiers who could see that that wasn't a good thing. You know, you need to be focused on your job all the time. And when you start to focus on pay, you start to focus on promotion, you start, some guys left and took on jobs with other companies. Some people crept back into the regiment who had left it in the past. It changed the dynamics. Two years later, that had settled down. So we'd pretty much gone back to being 
a good old get stuck in professional military unit again. But it was two years later. So, no, I think um, the guys who stood up bravely and said, look, what's the exit plan? were just saying, you know, how are you going to get us out of here? And instead of being absolutely clear, they were trying to, they were trying to get round it. Go down there, you know, do the job, and we'll worry about you getting home afterwards. And they were asking questions that senior officers didn't want to hear. Uh, they got stood down and the rest of us carried on to do the job. What was the actual job that you ended up doing down there? We didn't do anything. <laughs> we got there. We were going to we were going to pull something together for us to do a distraction assault on um, Port Stanley from the sea. Before we could do that, the enemy surrendered. And were the teams very similar to that of the Iranian embassy? Because you, you mentioned similar names there, or had a lot of people moved on? There were there were new guys. You get you get a, you get about an average of four or five new guys every year in a squadron. No, I mean pretty much the same names and faces in many cases, same numbers, but a different job. Uh, the counter-terrorist team is a completely different task. You're back to the four troops in the squadron, the air troop, the mobility troop, the boat troop, and the mountain troop. Um, you're back into those particular roles. But this, this role was a raiding role. So we were operating as a squadron of raiders. What's your abiding memory of that sort of period, late 70s, 80s, being in the SAS? Our country had a leader who had integrity. And she said, we will not negotiate with terrorists. And she stood by that. We were defeating terrorism at that time. In fact, we were one of the few countries in the world that was being successful in that particular role, not only in Northern Ireland, but against other terrorist groups as well. And we were training other people how to do that all over the world. But that changed with the end of Margaret Thatcher. And uh, people started to uh, use appeasement as a method of bringing what is called peace. But I have written in the past that peace isn't the absence of violence. Peace is the absence of injustice. And what's been happening since then is you, when you start to appease terrorists, they take everything you have. They will take your money. They will take your law. They will break down your institutions. They will destroy your government. And when all that's done, it'll still kill you. And that's a situation now, you know, 40 years later, that we're confronting in the United Kingdom with our veterans 50 years ago being taken back to court in Northern Ireland uh, with people attempting to charge them with murder for protecting the public and preventing a civil war in Northern Ireland. And it's not being done necessarily for the convictions, it's being done for the propaganda of the nationalists. There hasn't been one conviction, but there are a lot of cases that are spreading this, rewriting this dystopian history of Northern Ireland, where people who bombed, murdered, and killed for decades are suddenly being portrayed as victims of the British state. And um, people don't read these days, they read headlines. And um, I'm uh, fronting with several, with a few other people, a campaign to fight our own government to defend these people against repeated uh, prosecutions and persecutions that have no new evidence and no chance of actual conviction. It's a big thing with me at the moment. Robin, 
in the 80s, you were in your early 20s. What would you tell yourself now if you could go back and tell yourself something in your 20s? I think I would tell myself not to be so disappointed with people and not to set my standards so high. I got into the SAS as one of the youngest guys during that period. I got in when just, just before my 22nd birthday. I was a young, aggressive, uh, determined paratrooper, and I loved this. Soldiering was the only thing in my life. My mother had died. I was completely alone. I stayed at home. I stayed in the barracks at Christmas. The army was everything to me. Um, so getting into the most elite unit in the British Army, to me, it had to be elite all the time. And um, so I used, to, um, I used to mouth off a lot about how things should be and how I wanted them to be and how I expected them to be. Had I been six, five or six years older, I would have um, been more mature and realised that um, things can't be as perfect as they want them to be. Robin, thank you very much. That has been absolutely enthralling. Thank you for joining us on Conflict Chronicles. You can stay in touch by connecting with us on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast from. If you have a story or know of a story that should be told, contact us by our webpage at the My Story section, conflictchronicles.com. <laughs>